support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Graduate School, the University of Washington Alumni Association, and the Office of the President of the University of Washington. Welcome to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. Our nation continues to grapple with arguments for improving schools across the country. There are great schools. There are failing schools. There are successful teachers, not so successful teachers. There are principals, community activists, students, some engaged, some not. We spend millions of dollars on schools, invest millions of hours in efforts at school reform, searching for some universal formula, but maybe we're not looking the right way or in the right place. Professor Charles Payne spoke as part of the Race and Equity Initiative public lecture series at the University of Washington February 23rd in a talk entitled Doing Race Better, Race and the Reform of Urban Schools. And I was going to ask you to introduce yourself rather than me introducing you. So I have to do all the work here, huh? Uh, yes. <laughs> so I'm Charles Payne. I, um, I, I now teach at the University of Chicago um, School of Social Service Administration. Um, academically, I am partly invested in the study of social movements, especially the, the uh, American Civil Rights Movement, as most people call it. Uh, and then urban education, or, or better yet, education for disadvantaged students, whether they're urban or not. Um, and I am particularly interested with the intersection of those two things, which is where civil rights and education for disadvantaged students come together, which I've been thinking about more and more lately. Biographically, um, I guess it's important to say that, that uh, I started Syracuse University as an undergraduate in 1966. 1966 is a, uh, is a pivotal year. It's, it's, it's the year that that the term black power became a part of the American lexicon. So I grow up at the moment in which African Americans are beginning to switch from an interpersonal understanding of race, do you like me, do I like you, to a structural understanding of race. Uh, how is privilege distributed, right? So that's literally a part of my, of my coming into manhood and still going back and forth between those two paradigms, those two ways of thinking about the world. Uh, is a part of my active life. Uh, I have friends who call me an educational organizer, and that is again a function of growing up in Syracuse at a time when it thought of itself uh, as a training ground for community organizers. Many of the welfare rights organizers came out of Syracuse. Some strong core organizers came out of Syracuse. Um, I was working with uh, organizers from the Woodlawn organization, which that time was sort of the, the shining light of black community organization in, the, in, the, in this country when I was about 19 or 20 years old. So I grew up in that kind of organizing tradition. I, I got further steeped in it when I began to study the civil rights movement in, in Mississippi, which is probably the place where organizing as a modality um, reached its most powerful e e expression. And so some of the most gratifying work I have done uh, over the years uh, has been in that tradition. And that means uh, I both try to study schools and to work with schools. For the last uh, four or five years, the major project I have worked on has been in the Woodlawn neighborhood of Chicago, immediately south of the, uh, uh, the University of Chicago, modeled after the Harlem Children's Zone, in which we're trying to get 
all of the schools and other youth-serving agencies in the community working together and working at a higher level. So that's, that's enough of an intro. Let me start with the title of this talk as a way to get to those issues. Mm -hmm. What is meant by doing race better? It means a couple things. Uh, there is a strong tendency to deny the salience of race. The, the, the mere fact that people run around asking, why don't these kids do well in school? Is when I step back and think about the situation, the mere question is someplace between pitiful and insulting, right? They don't do well in schools. The, 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 the schools are fundamentally white supremacist institutions. And kids, even if they don't have that language, they have that understanding. They know that they are not welcome or valued, right? I mean, they know that if they yell at a teacher, they get suspended. If a white kid yell, yells at a teacher, he may get some lesser punishment. Kids understand that, right? Kids understand that because they are dark, they're assumed to not be intelligent by a great many teachers. And you know, obviously, everything I'm, I'm saying has all kinds of exceptions to it. Uh, it's, it's important to, to uh, allow that. But we're sending kids to under-resourced, falling apart, racialized schools. They understand this. That sends a message about how, how much they're valued. And then we ask, well, why don't, don't they value school? What do you mean by racialized schools? Schools that value people based on their race. Look, I haven't been in Seattle uh, what, 12 hours yet, right? But I will bet you, if, if you could go to a, to a knowledgeable person and ask them, where, where are the best principals in the city? What schools do they serve? And you go in those schools and look at the color of the kids in the seats, they will not be black and brown, right? The best of everything in every city tends to not go to black and brown children. Best principals, the best teachers, the best facilities. Do we sometimes end up with the best principals of color being transferred to white schools? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When we think about this question, why can't they do better? The argument has shaped the last 30 years has been, well, there's social factors, there's economic mm -hmm. factors, there's political factors, there's under-resourced schools. What happens when we say, given, yeah, sure, given all that, race is a factor. When we raise race back up to the forefront, well, what are we saying about reform efforts? But also, what are we saying about the next steps? I'm saying that, that, that most reform efforts are well-intended, under-resourced, and proceeding from shaky premises. So that one of the ways to begin to think about reform is to think about this, even though it flies counter to much much discourse over the last several years. You can't throw, you can't solve money by throwing, can't solve problems by throwing money at them. Oh yes you can, <laughs> right? It's just so much more complicated than that, right? But that kind of talk has taken the resource issue off the table. The entire conversation between conservatives and progressives in this country right now, largely the conservative argument that let's do charter schools, let's do vouchers. Those are management, they are not arguments about putting more resources on the table. They are not arguments about creating resource flows where more resources flow to where they are most needed. Right. What are the arguments about, really? Management, well, well, now if you say. I do say really. Well, yes, right. Uh, at one level, they are based on the notion and actually, as, as conservatism goes in this country, right, 
the traditional conservative explanation for inequality of any kind is there's something wrong with those people at the bottom, right? They don't have character. They don't want to work. They don't speak English. Something wrong with them. That has been, in one way or another, always the, the conservative explanation. At some point in the 1980s, with respect to urban schools, the argument changed. And it's the kids, it's, it's not that the kids and the families are the problem. From that viewpoint now, the problem is the schools. The schools are run by self-serving bureaucrats, controlled by teachers' unions. And so that rather than blaming the kids and families, the modern conservative blames, blames the people who are just above them in the... Uh, and hence, and, charter and, schools means we get those people out of the way of We control. get those people out of the way. Now, we're not putting any more resources, right? And the resources that we have, we are investing in our kids and privileged kids, that's going to continue, and that's not going to be examined, right? But we're going to give these kids more efficiently run, albeit still in some ways relatively stripped down schools from a resource perspective. American education, public schools, underpinnings. Are they inherently paternalistic? I don't, I, I don't know how to answer that. Inherently is a curveball for me. Uh-huh. Um, how come? It's such a strong level of argument. I right? see. Okay. I mean, if, if you want to argue to what degree, are they paternalistic? Well, okay. then we can, that's one way to think about it, right? All right. But All right. to say that it's Because that in, negates the, 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 yes, the spectrum. I right? get you. And, and so then the question would become... Where are the circumstances, where are the cases in which people who do not necessarily have standing in the broader society are yet respected by schools? And I think that we, we can find cases like that which suggest it's not inherent in the school system, right? What's it inherent in then? I mean, what, 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 why do we have this lingering problem with reforming education in this country? Why does the discussion always turn these other factors, rather than, for example, as you said, race, yeah, but resource. Slow down. You just took a, a jump from a statement about paternalism to yes, a statement about the basic causes, right? Okay. And so you are kind of equating things that are really complicated. All right. If the question now is, why are, why has it been so? I'll put all of this in quotes for me because I think this is a silly question. Oh. But it is the national question. I'm not picking That's on right. you in particular. You I'll ask take the it. question the same way everybody else does. Why has it been so hard, apparently, presumably, so they tell us, to reform these schools? A large part of my answer would be because we go at it just, just ask backwards, right? We should be going at this the other way. We go at this by asking the question, when we see kids who are disadvantaged, when we see them thrive in schools, what do those schools look like? Now, these other schools that are failing, what are they like? Right? But we begin by asking the question about when and how does it work for kids, right? And that is what we have not do. And so part of that you find right away, right? Gee, some of the places where it works for kids are places that make a systematic policy of giving more resources to poor kids. So that in, in uh, Charlotte-Mecklenburg, uh, North Carolina, they have created a culture around the notion that if you are a strong leader, you need to be in a tough school. And if you are not, a str if, if you are not asked to go and work in inner city school, my understanding and I, from, from the mouth of the, of the current superintendent is that principals will come to her and ask, why haven't I been assigned to a tougher school? Is this, is this a judgment on my professional capacity, right? Um, so we flipped the paradigm there. We flipped the paradigm, right? 
Uh, if you go, uh, don't trust me on numbers, but this, this this is approximate. If you go into Montgomery County, Maryland, and you look at the uh, uh, a district that has some really quite substantially wealthy student bodies and some that are quite poor, uh, if you go into schools serving the richer part of the uh, uh, the county, the average kindergarten class is going to be 25 students and a teacher. If my memory is right, in the schools serving the poorer constituencies, the average kindergarten class is 17 kids, one teacher, and one aide, right? Their argument is you have to have kids reading well by the time they're in third grade, and that means that the kids who are in, 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 in the wealthier schools are going to do just fine in that respect, right? The kids where you have to put extra resources in are the kids who are not necessarily getting the same kinds of supports in the rest of their lives. But resources follow need. I just want to underscore that. That's one of the things that you find in environments that work for poor children. And we don't pay much attention to that. Not every poor child is an African-American, Hispanic, uh, Asian. Mm -hmm. So where does, where does the question of doing race better, where does that come into the, where's the intersection of that with dealing with under-resourcing? these schools hi is that a dumb question I, no I think it's, it's it's several questions embedded in, 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 into one if you take race out of it how does this look in some ways if you take race out of it and the American tendency to make segregation invisible we don't think about it we don't talk about it it's there and so we don't say when we ask these questions we say we've done this we've invested all this money you would think that someone would say, we've never tried to think about or to change the impact of residential and school and classroom segregation. People are saying, we've done all of this stuff, right? But the fundamental defining line of race in, in the second half of the 20th century has to do with the entrenchment of segregation in our lives. And what that does is make it possible to give different kinds of kids different kinds of resources. Right? If they're all in the same classroom, it's still possible, but it's, 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 it's more difficult to do that. So when you take the argument that we have done so much, but, those are, but we have not tried to think seriously about what I take to be the primary policy vehicle for white supremacy, that we've done so much is not so impressive. That's one level, right? When we look at the situation of poor whites, in many ways, I think we find very similar issues, not to the same degree. Poor whites tend to not live in neighborhoods where there is as much concentrated poverty, right? So in that way, they have, they have an advantage. Let me see if I say this correctly. A white or Hispanic family earning $75,000 a year or more is more likely to go to a high poverty school than a white family earning $40,000 or less. That is, poor whites do not, are not clustered, right, are not forced to go to school with other poor people to the degree that poor blacks and Hispanics, even wealthier blacks and Hispanics are, right? So that there are some advantages that are inherent inherent in white skin, one. Two, there is still 
a problem of kids being devalued on the basis of the families they come from, what their parents do or don't do. And in many ways, even though there are differences of degree, the kind of dynamics um, of poverty are very similar across the racial lines. Differences of, of degree, but similarity in the nature of the dynamics. Teachers look at you and they don't see, ah, here's somebody who's gonna be at the University of Washington in 15 years, right? They wonder if you're gonna be in a jail cell. So another way to say that is that there, there's a kind of racial discount. A dollar doesn't buy the same kind of social privilege in the hands of a black or brown person. And the vehicle of white supreme, the, the, the policy vehicle of white supremacy that you just mentioned? Is segregation of multiple types at multiple levels of the system. So flipping that, mm -hmm. expectation, let me quote something that I thought was the, the mission of the Education for Liberation Network, mm -hmm. which you are a founder of, a co-founder of. <laughs> Many years ago, but go ahead. Is it still valid for your life? Yes, I, I'm just not, it's young people have taken it over, right? And they're doing wonderful things, but they're doing them without me. The network aims to help improve the practice of education for liberation by bringing people together to learn from each other's experiences, provides a space for members to share knowledge, building alliances across the boundaries of geography, occupation, and age. We hope to nurture communities of thoughtful, socially engaged people to maximize the impact of their work. And the purpose is, uh, prepares the most disenfranchised members of our society, in particular low-income youth and youth of color, to fight for a more just world. Mm -hmm. That's asking the question the other way, correct? That's saying, let's see what works. Let's, let's see how people work together. How are you seeing that um, show itself up in this network, in different schools, in different people? What are you, what are you seeing? Well, the, the, the network... Um has created uh, a national webbing of young people who are interested in that kind of work, who are linked together. They do all kinds of really interesting projects. Um, some of the, 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 the kinds of work that I've been most closely associated with, not necessarily through the network, but through parallel organizations, have been connected to freedom schools. And I'm not sure um, how, I'm not sure how much of this remains in current public memory, but in the form that we talk about them now, Freedom Schools came pretty directly out of Mississippi in, in the summer of 64, the summer that uh, Sharona Goodman and Cheney were, were killed, the summer that uh, something under a 1,000 white students from the north invaded Mississippi as, as uh, the headlines at, at the time. And, and in that summer, at a time when very few Mississippians of any color was, were, were, were getting much that we would call a decent education. As a part of the activities of what we call Freedom Summer, you created a network of schools, and they were intended to be partly just academic institutions because the schools of Mississippi were so poor. So one of the most popular courses was uh, algebra because very few black schools offered algebra in Mississippi in those days. Language courses were very popular because, you know, no, nobody saw a point 
when actually people saw many problems with the idea of, of teaching foreign languages to black children. But beyond that, most of the, much of, much of the, what was distinctive about the curriculum was that it was trying to encourage young people to think of themselves as leaders in their own communities, right? To think of themselves as people who could analyze social problems and then act on those social problems. So in the modern version, um, and I'll bet you there are some in, in Seattle or nearby, um, in their modern version, the Freedom Schools, uh, there was a Freedom School program run by the Children's Defense Fund I don't know how vigorous they are, but the last I knew, they were doing several hundred schools across the across the country uh, every summer, and they still speak to many of the same basic issues that the um, Freedom Schools of the 1960s spoke to. In part, that means they are places that are very affirmative around whatever a student's background is. African-American, Native American, Puerto Rican-American, white, poor. They have been adapted to virtually every, every part of this society. So it's very affirmative around issues of racial or ethnic background. At the same time, kids are urged. The freedom schools that I've worked with have had kids, I'm gonna say, from seven or eight years old to about 12 years old, so relatively young. Other freedom schools will go up to 15 or 16, so this, it's, it's, it's quite a range. But even with our, 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 our young kids, uh, in the last several years, I think one summer was devoted to having the kids study and try to do something about gun violence. Another summer was having the kids study and do something about inequities in school funding. So they begin by studying it, they may end by writing uh, um, letters to public officials, having meetings with public officials, having demonstrations about those issues. But, but the message you want children to get is that this is your community. And I can't quote this directly from memory, but it's, the mantra is, you can make a difference right now in your school, in your family, in your community in your world. I think that's the way, something like that. But the point, going back to, to, to this, is to think of their race not as a stigma, not as a disadvantage, but as a way to begin building a connection between them and activists of the past that will encourage them to see themselves as people who can do what those people did, if not more. Talk about, talk about then the Woodlawn project that you're working on and how that mm -hmm. relates. Uh, it's been fascinating. Uh, it was started by uh, Bishop Arthur Brazier, uh, Apostolic Church of God. Um, in the 1960s, the, the, the leader of the Woodlawn organization, which was famous for stopping both the University of Chicago and the Chicago Democratic Machine in their in their uh, tracks when they were planning to bulldoze the community of which he was a leader. Uh, a towering figure uh, in the history of organizing in this country and, and a towering figure in, on Chicago's uh, civic landscape until he died. God, has it been four years now? But in any case, uh, Bishop was always beating up on the University of Chicago about its ignoring of poor children on its borders 
and this la- and he's been doing this for a long time. Every so often, he he would go on the warpath against the university, uh, and partly because of that, um, the university was able to help develop a program modeled on the Harlem Children's Zone. And and for us, there were like three three broad buckets of work. One was a notion you have to help individual children develop. That was a kind of thing that I just talked about. It's the Freedom School. Our notion of child development is that we don't want kids who can just be smart. We want kids who are leaders in this community, right? And so what that meant for us programmatically, one of our, uh, most of our sub-programs have been named by children. And it's interesting that when you let the kids name something, they put the word promise into everything. I don't know what it means. I know it's true, right? And so it's a cross-age tutoring program. The kids named it Promising Young Leaders and Readers. And the idea is that you have eighth and ninth graders tutor in reading kindergarten kids, first grade kids, right? So you have uh, uh, a, a split of several grades between the kids doing the tutoring and the kids who are tutored. And what happens is, of course, the Teaching is one of the best ways to learn. So the kids doing the tutoring improve their own skills in some ways. Uh, they improve their attitudes in some ways, right? They become quite thoughtful about how they can help develop the younger kids. They come to us asking for, for more materials and for more tools to, to, to do their work. They also come to us complaining, damn, these little kids are bad, <laughs> right? Which is only fun because the big kids are bad too, right? But but uh, it, it's different when you're on the other side, other side of the line. At the same time, the little kids love having big protectors in the school, right? Because very strong bonds grow between the, the eighth and ninth graders, uh, some of whom would, by usual school standards, be considered antisocial. Right? But when they are put into a position where the responsibility is on them, almost all of them rise to the occasion. So that would be an example of, of at, at one time when we had some extra money, we had college students teach math to high school students, then we paid the high school students to teach an after-school math class to sixth and seventh graders, I was, right? But, but, but that notion of, of, of a kind of link in which everybody teaches the people below them in some learning scale, I mean, that would be, that would be a heart of what we mean by, 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 by youth development. How widespread is that? How many people is it reaching in that neighborhood? Or we only we only had the funds to do that for one year. It would have been our high school. It probably reached um, four, five, six grade classrooms. So 120, 130 kids, something like that. Where where, where are funds going in those uh, in Chicago public schools? The Chicago public schools are a mess uh, through a series of political deals over. First of all, they've always been underfunded, so far as I can understand. But through a series of political deals that, if my understanding is correct, go back to the last mayor daily, uh, in which funds that should have gone into teachers' pensions went into everything but that. And so now pensions are, uh, are, are severely underfunded, which is, I guess, not uncommon across, uh, across the country. And so the bills come due. And the... Uh, both the state and the city are in a are pretty close to crisis mode around funding right now. Well, if I read your biography correctly, mm-hmm. you spent some time inside 
the Chicago Public yes, Schools. Yes, I did. <laughs> what, was, what was that experience like, and what did it teach you? Yeah, people, what did it teach me? It was one of those things where I got, I did it dragging and screaming because I had other things to do with my life. Uh, but it was also one of those things where it's very hard to say no because there's just some sliver of a chance that you might be able to do something that's worth doing. You were recruited by, I was, a, by I, a colleague, right? I was recruited by a colleague. Terry Mazzani became the chief executive officer, and he sort of tapped me. Uh, and to some significant degree, I was doing it as a favor to Terry. What I found first is that there was more possibility to do good from that position than I understood. Because I think of, the, of, of central offices in our worst big cities as being so internally contradictory that it's very difficult to get anything done, right? For the good, you can do a whole lot of, you can mess up a lot of things, right? Uh, but to line up the resources to do something for kids and teachers and families, that's really hard. Um, I think my largest impression, let me see, maybe, is it 20 years early, around the 1990s, I used to spend a lot of time in central office working with, with the mass project, the, the algebra project. Uh, and so I was in and out of that office. I had, I had a sense for its culture. And I guess coming back after all these years, near, near, nearly 30 years, I guess it is, um, I was impressed by the quality of the people downtown, right? Uh, how smart they were, how many people really did want to do something for kids, and then how little difference it made. <laughs> right? Uh, because even though you had upgraded, I think this is true, I mean, the, the, the personnel were upgraded over time, um, the politics were still so deeply entrenched that people's real lives on the job were about defending themselves politically. They were not about education, right? Terry Mazzani, the chief executive officer, he called a meeting of all of central office staff. Now, first of all, that kind of meeting doesn't happen, right? That kind of the kind of cohesion that that meeting implies that almost never happens before. We, we can go back to that in a second, right? But then at the meeting, he he, he comes out bringing I think it was Dr. Seuss, the Cat in the Hat, and he just start, he didn't do a speech. He just starts reading the book, and at some point he says something like, "Now this is our job, right? We need to get back focused on making kids enjoy this, right?" Had an electric effect, <laughs> right? <laughs> Nevertheless, the reality of the place is that everybody is divided into these little political camps, and life is about getting resources for your political camp, aligning your camp with the people uh, who seem to be on the rise politically. That just drains folk, right? And getting people from, at, at the time that I was there, arguably politically, the weakest department, uh, NCPS was a department that was teaching and learning. Now that sounds silly, doesn't it? Sound, not, had the fewest people, the fewest resources. Uh, people have all kinds of strategy meetings and nobody from teaching and learning would be there, right? I mean, that's, that's what the politics are like. Because that's, we were coming through a moment at which the gospel was, it's not about teaching and learning, it's about whether schools are charter or not charter, right? And so resources got taken away from them and put into things like the Office of New Schools, Right, where by and large you had almost nobody who knew how to teach a duck to swim. Um, the um, 
so that was the lesson for, for my time. I gave uh, the senior staff um, something that David Rogers had written about the New York City School Board as it existed in maybe the 1970s, something like that. And you don't get, the way it's written, you can't figure out exactly when he's talking about, and it's about the politics inside that school board until you're almost near the end of the article. And until people got to the end of the article, they thought they were, he was describing Chicago today. What's to be done? Yeah, I mean, there are two ways to think about it. If you ask me what kind of programs uh, I am trying to foist upon communities that I work with right now, uh, some of them don't know this yet, so I hope they don't listen to this podcast. Uh, I am very interested in the, in the model of the International Baccalaureate right, uh, for inner-city kids. The data that we have is not a lot, but it's 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 some it's what we have is pretty good research, right? With, 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 it's a quasi-experimental study from Chicago, shows really large impacts, right? When kids who are I think on the whole just a little bit above average ability, not the kind of kids ordinarily go to IB, right? Um, you get a high dropout rate, uh, almost a third, but those who stayed, you got really big impacts, and you figure you can you can work out on you can work out the dropout rate. But IB gives you a tradition of really high academic standards. It gives you a tradition of, of genuine critical thinking. It gives you a tradition of trying to connect kids to both the arts and the sciences, and a tradition of trying to get kids to think of themselves civically, right? To be engaged citizens, not of a local community, but of the world, international citizens. I like all of that, right? But it gives you that core notion of really strong academics, right? Take that and you take a freedom school model, right? Freedom school gives you an explicit way to address issues of race. Kids are being told in various ways, you don't measure up. You're not as valuable as people with a different address or a different skin color. They need a counter narrative. There's something else that I didn't say about freedom schools that's really important to me, is that freedom schools are an environment in which young people are expected to affirm one another. And there's a long history to this, but I think part of the way in which inner city kids, and I'll, I'll, I'll say black kids to a particular degree, react to their stigmatized status is they blame each other, right? And they blame each other by creating what I call a put-down culture, a culture in which they're insulting each other all the time. And it's interesting to me how much of those insults are racialized, right? You black so-and-so, this, right? Um, I take that to be a reaction to how they think the world thinks of them, right? It ain't me, I'm fine, you, but you, you, have, you have all those problems. A part of what's important to me about the Freedom Schools is that not only do they give you counter-narrative, they give you a culture in which kids are, I think it's right to say, required to say something positive about other kids. They have a tradition called the shout-out, and um, which is a, a kind of sing-song, chant, dance thing, <laughs> right? There's a good scientific description in which kids um, um, are saying something positive about another child, and people are expected to do this, right? So that's, that's, that's a departure from what most... Then to that, I would add one, one, one third component, and that is... Um, some kind of targeted social services for the families that are most affected by poverty, right? And, and so that's 
that can be multi-generational issues. That can be um, people with substance abuse issues. That, that can be parent, children who are just not getting enough attention. It can be a whole lot of things, right? But you need some package of social supports to speak to that group of parents. You wrote this in uh, 2013 in an essay. One of the ugliest notes creeping back into the national conversation is the idea that maybe schools can't really do anything for poor children after all. The real issue is poverty. We have to acknowledge without blinking that poverty damages children, but we also have to recognize that the stronger schools and school systems do much better by children than schools where the leadership spends its time whining about poverty. Public figures who don't get that forfeit their right to be taken seriously. Embedded in that quote is that a conversation needs to take place. Walk me through that conversation. Well, at this point, most of the, the nation has bought into the idea that all urban schools fail, that all schools for, for black and poor children fail. That's a pernicious idea. And for different reasons, I'm going to say since the 1980s, both the left, which is trying to defend the teaching profession, and the right, which is trying to undermine the teaching profession, um, have been pushing this idea that there's nothing we can do with these children un un under current circumstances. Meanwhile, there are educators all over the country who are just giving the lie to that idea. And so again, the first part of, of, of that is we have to engage at a, at a different level with the work of the practitioners who are making real difference. We have to engage at, 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 a, at a different level with uh, a conversation around why. But if you look at last fall's um, NAEP testing, we now have 21, we now have 21 uh, cities that report the NAEP National Assessment of Educational Progress as cities, right? There are about six of them that are consistently outscoring the nation, right? That's not a part of our, we don't, we don't expect, right, that urban areas will do better. And if, if you look just at minority children, if you look just at poor children, it's going to be the same pattern. There are now cities that do better than the rest of the country, right? We're not having any national discourse that I can find about what those cities are, are doing. Now, some of that, by the way, my guess is will take you right back to what they do with resources, right? Some of them will take you back to just what is the level of resources that they have. We are beginning to have a better understanding that early childhood education can make a large difference. Um, so that, 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 that's been a real positive step in the last, that both conservatives and progressives have sort of now bought into that. We have to be really careful that people do not now try to water it down, because I, I don't know what you get when you water it down. Professor Payne, thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Charles M. Payne is the Frank P. Hickson Distinguished Service Professor in the School of Social Service Administration at the University of Chicago where he is also an affiliate of the Urban Education Institute. We spoke February 23, 2016. His talk in Seattle was sponsored by the UW Graduate School, the University of Washington Alumni Association, as well as a number of other departments and programs at the UW. The next talk in the Equity and Difference Public Lecture Series will be in Seattle April 5th at Kane Hall on the UW campus. Registration is open. Touré is a journalist and culture critic. He is a contributor to Vice, his book, Who's Afraid of Post-Blackness? What It Means to Be Black Now, was a 2011 most notable book by both the New York Times and the Washington Post. 
He is working on books with the artist Nas and with Rakim. He also wrote, I Would Die For You, Why Prince Became an Icon. His talk will be about microaggression, power, privilege, and everyday life. Our conversation will also be available soon after his talk. Find this podcast at our homepage, at length with Steve Share, also on iTunes, Stitcher, and other networks. Search for At Length with Steve Share. Thoughts, comments, reactions, at length with Steve Share at gmail.com. Share is spelled S C H E R. Thank you for listening. Support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Graduate School, the University of Washington Alumni Association, and the Office of the President of the University of Washington. Mm-hmm.